Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. We've got our usual format for you today. We're going to kick things off with a news roundup and then we'll move on to a question of the week and then our third segment. And so in the news roundup, we're going to talk about a couple of things relating to the US wireless market. So Verizon finally caved and started offering unlimited service again and T-Mobile reported its financial results. Those two are definitely related and we'll talk about those. Uh, Secondly, we'll talk about Apple joining the Wireless Power Consortium, which manages the Qi wireless charging standard. And then thirdly, we'll talk about Facebook's various announcements around TV and video. So it's going to be launching an app for Apple TV and other TV platforms, as well as uh, making some changes to the way that video uh, runs within the app on mobile devices. Then our question of the week will be, who is investing in original video content and why? And so uh, the trigger for this is really a couple of different things this week around original video content. Apple uh, showed off trailers for a couple of its original shows that are going to be part of Apple Music. Uh, YouTube had a bit of a mishap with one of its uh, best-known creators and one of its important partners around original content. Uh, And then the Facebook announcements also relate to this. So we're going to do a deep dive on uh, the various companies investing in original video content, why they're doing that, how much they're paying for it, whether it's actually going to be worth it in the end, and so on. And then our third segment, we're going to do a deep dive on uh, Snap's uh, S1 filing for IPO. So uh, owner of Snapchat, Snap Inc., uh, filed its uh, IPO documents a couple of weeks ago publicly, and uh, they contain lots of information uh, about the company, its finances, its operating metrics, and so on. And uh, something I've written a blog post about a couple of weeks ago when the S1 first came out, but we haven't really talked about on the podcast yet. So we'll be discussing that as our third segment, and then we'll wrap up with a weekly pick as well. So to kick off our news roundup, uh, as I said, a couple of wireless topics. Verizon uh, Wireless announced that it would be offering unlimited service again. This was something of a dramatic turnaround because it's just launched a big ad campaign talking about how all most people need is about five gigabytes of data. uh, And it had really pushed back on the idea that it would have to offer unlimited. Um, Then T-Mobile announced its financial results later in the week. And uh, they showed not only that T-Mobile had another good quarter, but uh, during the course of the call, it became clear that T-Mobile was taking absolutely masses of customers from Verizon in the first part of Q1 and so it seems that Verizon just finally said they'd had enough and and caved on that point. Um, Aaron I I think you're a Sprint customer if I recall correctly is that right? Yeah I don't love it. (laughs) (laughs) No, I get a really cheap unlimited deal through my university employer Oh yeah, and so that's why I do it and and you know I'm I'm mostly happy with it I think you know if I you know we're in Utah and so there are beautiful places to go camping and and if I go camping, I often lose the signal before AT&T or Verizon customers do. Right. It's about on par coverage-wise with T-Mobile, I think. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, the, the unlimited thing is a funny thing because it's it feels so inevitable to me that, mm. you know, in the long run, it's going to be, uh, you know, all you can eat data. I, I think that's I think that's the inevitable result. But you know, there are infrastructure improvements and other things that need to change before we get there. But I think in the end, people are going to be buying a one-size-fits-all package. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, I, this is something that I've been following in a number of different ways for a very long time. It's one of the first things that I covered as a telecoms analyst back in 2000, 2001 uh, was flat rate internet access um, in the UK. When that was a new thing there, it was dial-up still at that point. Um, the fundamental problem with that model was it was flat rate to the user, but the, the provider was paying on a per minute rate. And so the, the trick was always to figure out roughly what your average customer would use so that you could uh, set the price at the right point. And that's the fundamental issue with every 
unlimited plan is your costs are to some extent going to be variable and yet you are now fixing your revenue at a certain level. You're basically capping your upside unless you do regular price increases. Um, and if you set the price at the right level or if you have, in the case of a wireless operator, a network that's empty enough that you can afford to have lots more traffic running across it, uh, you know, even without making uh, enormous additional infrastructure investments, then that's fine. But if you're Verizon and AT&T that have well over 100 million customers each, and, uh, and suddenly decide to start offering unlimited again, it's, it's a potentially expensive proposition. And so that's sure. why these companies have resisted it for so long and actually moved away from it for several years, having offered it previously. Um, but yeah, it's just a sign of, of how badly T-Mobile has begun to damage these carriers, and especially Verizon, that they felt the need to do this. Um, you know, it's interesting, Verizon you know, made this announcement the same day T-Mobile announced a number of new promotions and discounts and things. Um, you know, they clearly feel the need to respond. They try to talk about it as if they're coming from a position of strength. But the reality is that you know, T-Mobile's network still underperforms Verizon's by, by more than they say as well. And they, they cite just the right numbers to, to suggest their performance is great. But um, you know, they still need to basically discount their pricing relative to the big guys because they recognize that there's certainly a perception problem still. And actually, there's a problem in reality still, too, as far as coverage and quality and so on. And so it's interesting to watch that com competitive dynamic play out. Well, let's move to the second topic, uh, which was Apple joining the, the Wireless Power Consortium. Um, this is the, the group that manages the Qi Wireless Charging Standards, spelled QI. Um, it's the standard that Samsung uses. It's um, the, the WPC is the result of a merger between several different standards bodies. This is the rare example of a, a tech industry uh, area where there's actually been a, a narrowing in standards over time. So much of the time we see all these competing standards springing up and just this fragmentation of the market. You know, in this part of the market, it has actually been narrowing down, which is a good thing. Um, Apple has never been part of this, mostly because iPhones have never used wireless charging. But of course, both the uh, Apple Watch and AirPods use wireless charging of one kind or another. Um, and as it turns out, the Apple Watch uses basically Qi wireless charging just without the certification and everything that goes around it. So um, there's a couple of different ways to read this. But Aaron, what was your take on this announcement? Well, I, I noticed that a lot of people immediately read this to to mean that uh, that Apple wasn't planning on that Apple isn't going to be introducing the distance-based wireless charging that was rumored for the for the next iPhone. Yeah, um, I'm not sure that that's a guarantee, um, but but there are a couple things that are more likely here. One is. Apple didn't, if Apple didn't feel like the technology needed to improve, they wouldn't be participating in the consortium. That's not Apple's way. And that's, I mean, the proof of that is the fact that the watch has been using this wireless standard, wireless charging standard for, um, you know, I guess technically not quite two years in the watch since it launched anyway. Um, but obviously they've been working on it as a platform for longer than two years. Um, and they haven't joined until now. I, I think what that tells us is it's a, it's a signal based on the way Apple has participated in other consortiums like this, that they have contributions to make that they feel are important to the standard. The fact that they're contributing to a standard also tells me that it, they want to contribute to a standard that they want iPhones and other devices to be able to take advantage of going into the future. Mm -hmm. um, this has interesting implications. Um, one, you know, charging stations right now that you can find in restaurants or airports or other places require that you bring a cable with you and have a cable handy. And that's that's right. kind of a pain. Yeah. And it, but it's 
but it won't take long for airports and restaurants to convert over to wireless stands where when you sit down at the table or at, you know at your seat while you're waiting for your flight you can just drop your phone onto something next to your seat there and it'll start charging without needing a cable apple i think is going to be contributing to that outcome and also benefiting from it the interesting implication of that is that apple has benefited from an ecosystem built up around its connector technology first with the 30 pin dock connector and then with lightning and there is the potential for that ecosystem advantage to be diminished greatly by apple investing in something that becomes more of a universal standard um, you know all of these speaker docks and other things like that that that's already weakening because bluetooth is taking over and i wonder if apple's just sort of decided okay charging is not enough of a reason for people to feel comfortable in the in the iphone connector ecosystem and and so i think they're only participating in the standard because they want to push it along and i think the 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 made for i the mfi ecosystem that they've built up around it is is going to be diminished as a result mm, yeah I, i'm yeah, I'm very curious here. I mean, I, I'm I'm not a huge fan of the mat-based charging standards because I feel like in some ways they're actually worse than plugging in a cable. Because you plug in a cable, you can still lift your phone to your ear and make phone calls. You can still do two-fingered typing on it. You can, uh, I mean, two-handed typing on it with your thumbs or whatever. You can, um, uh, you know, you can hold it up to your ear to listen to something. You can uh, play a game. You can. There's all kinds of stuff you can do. If you lay it down on a mat, it has to stay flat on that surface. Uh, until you know you're done charging it, and yes, you know you can pick it up and put it down again in between things. But uh, you know, I've always felt like those, those technologies, the idea of putting a phone down and having it just charge automatically is a nice one. But in practical terms, it then stops you from being able to actually use your device relative to having a cable plugged in. So, I've never been a huge fan. I've always been a lot more interested in the charging over distance and. Uh, and there's certainly been some rumors that Apple was working with Energis, for example, that makes that technology and has been very cagey about who its biggest partner is. Um, but to your point, this, this is probably just about trying to influence the standard, whether that's for future Apple Watches, whether that's for the iPhone, whether it's for something else entirely, we don't know. But as you say, they don't just up and join a, a standards body like this just because you want to use the technology. They can do that already. Um, so yeah, I'm very curious to see how this all kind of pans out here. But you make some good points about uh, about the, their own standards and so on. Um, the third news roundup topic is Facebook's announcements they made at the Code Media conference this week. Um, they announced that they are working on a TV app. That was something that was reported a couple of weeks ago, I think, by the Wall Street Journal. Um, this is uh, an app that would go on an Apple TV, Amazon's TV boxes, uh, Samsung smart TVs. Uh, no mention of Android TV, interestingly, uh, obviously by far the smallest of those platforms, but also no mention of Roku either. Um, so interesting choices of platforms there. But this is a, some kind of video app uh, without much specifics around it so far from Facebook. Uh, and obviously video is a massive focus for them. They've got a video tab now in the mobile app. Um, they also made several other announcements, like you're going to be able to play picture-in-picture -picture videos. So you start playing a video, and then you scroll through your feed, and the video will keep playing in the corner. Um, it's autoplay uh, with audio now by default unless you have your phone muted and you can change that setting but that's another change and then su better support for vertical video as well which can be a bit of a pain to watch on Facebook at the moment but obviously very native to Snapchat so uh, those are some of the changes that were announced what was your take on those Aaron? I think it's going to be interesting to see how far into video Facebook goes with this because this is creating a video platform now it's not just um, 
like allowing people to, to embed videos into their Facebook posts. And, and a lot of people are watching video on Facebook because of the social graph that they have. It's going to be interesting to see how far Facebook takes this beyond the social graph. I mean, are, are they going to be pushing? Are they going to be pushing content that has nothing to do with my graph, and the people who are posting things, or is it still going to just be stuck to the friends and the people I'm friends with on Facebook and what they share? I, I think it'll start off actually as a mix of both, and it, it, it's also going to be a, a, a brand new advertising platform, which is going to be exciting for Facebook. And then the, the last thing it opens up is is original content, which we're going to be talking about soon. But if Facebook has a platform, a, a video platform, it seems like that's an, a natural next step. Is mm-hmm. is no a natural is too strong of a word. It seems like that's a that's a that's a enticing next step. Is original content. I, I mean, even Twitter in its efforts to, you know, to start moving into video. Uh, recognize their needs for the need for exclusive content and so that's you know that's why they were pushing into like live sports for example um and uh and, and so I, I think facebook has got to be talking about it in the same way and they've got to be thinking about what could people watch in the facebook video app versus everything else yeah no absolutely i i i wrote a piece for tech opinions i think it was last week about you know the big opportunity that facebook has once it says hey, you know what, we know enough about people now that we can just show them video that we know they'll like rather than having to be video that's shared by their friends. And that then right. becomes very powerful. And, and Mark Zuckerberg talked on the earnings call a couple of weeks ago about you know, their AI is getting to the point where it can actually recognize the content of photographs and pretty soon it'll be able to recognize the content of videos so that it doesn't even need to have a very good description to be able to know this video is like that other video that you liked and therefore I'm going to show it to you. And, and actually just this week I had a video pop up on my feed that didn't seem to have come from anywhere other than Facebook thought I might be interested in it. So they're really starting to do that. And, and if that's something that they're working on, then you know that seems like a great fit for a TV app where you can literally just sit down and just say, play me one video after another based on what you would know I like. You know, And some of them will come from your friends because they know you're interested in things shared by your friends, but a lot of them will be based on videos that you've engaged with before. And you know, I, I share, I, I, I save a bunch of cute animal videos on my phone because I know my kids like to watch them. And so whenever I'm scrolling through, I'll save those videos for later and then watch them with my kids. Well, the video that popped up this week was one of those, you know, and it hadn't come from anybody that I knew it had just, Facebook had just kind of got the message that I like cute animal videos and showed me another one. Um, and, you know, that, that's quite powerful. And a lot of that video now is actually hosted on Facebook rather than necessarily being hosted on YouTube. And so, you know, that's a powerful place for them to start showing video ads. They, they've introduced these mid-roll ads um, that, that they're rolling out now. Um, they're they're you know, treading very carefully with that, but that's going to be their way to monetize this stuff. And they've also started tweaking the algorithm to start favoring some longer form videos as well. And so um, you know, that, that sets up the stage, obviously, for both third parties and for Facebook itself to start filling that. And they just uh, announced the appointment this week of somebody whose job is going to be being in charge of original content at Facebook. So um, you know, that's, that's clearly an area they're going to be investing in as well. Well, and now we all know how to advertise to the Dawson family. <laughs> That's right. Cute Just animals. That's the way to our hearts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We're suckers for that stuff. All right. Well, let's move on to the question of the week. And as I said up front, uh, the question this week is who's investing in original video content and why? Uh, and again, this is prompted by a number of things this week. Apple debuted a couple of trailers for its original shows that will be part of Apple Music at the Code Media Conference. Uh, YouTube. Um, 
had one of its most prominent creators, a guy who goes by PewDiePie, his, his real name is Felix Gelberg. Um, he um, was found to have posted several anti-Semitic videos recently that had kind of flown somewhat under the radar. And um, when this was pointed out to Disney, they uh, broke their relationship with them. YouTube removed him from its original content roster going forward, which you know he's been a major part of. Uh, and there were various other repercussions as well. So that was another thing. And then obviously the Facebook story we just talked about is another one that relates to original content. So it's very much in the news at the moment. Um, but we thought it might be worth doing something of a deep dive to actually talk about you know, what is going on in original content, who's really investing, how much, what's the sort of scale of this stuff, you know, why are they doing it, uh, and is it, frankly, likely to pay off from a business model perspective. So I've been doing some research around this this week, and uh, Aaron's going to be firing some questions at me to, to get into some of this stuff. So, yeah, and when we were talking about this beforehand, we were trying to figure out the best way to structure this because there are a lot of different players, and they all are taking slightly or dramatically different strategies here. But I think the best thing is let's just get a, a roster of participants. So do you want to talk us through who all is playing in this space? Some of them I think we all know, but uh, but some people in this space we may not be thinking about. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to bound this a little bit by kind of excluding pretty much all of the traditional TV companies because that's kind of what they've always done is, you know, acquire and then commission their own TV shows and so on. So, you know, I'm not going to talk in depth about, you know, CBS or NBC or ABC here in the US or, you know, BBC in the UK or anybody else like that. That's, that's kind of their bread and butter business. Uh, the only real sort of traditional TV company I'm going to mention is HBO, just because that is a company that has pivoted from, you know, what was originally licensing movies and so on and, and showing those in early window releases uh, and pivoted from that to original content. And that's obviously been a long effort they're one of the longest players in the space, but they are one of the biggest sort of premium original content uh, buyers and commissioners out there as well. So I will mention HBO, but I will exclude most of the other big TV companies. Um, but it's, you know, let's start kind of alphabetical order here to some extent with Amazon. Uh, Amazon's obviously a player here. They have their prime uh, subscription service, of which a big component is video. Um, sort of Netflix-like subscription video service that's here in the US and increasingly in many other countries around the world as well. Um, they um, have bought original content to go in there. They've, they've commissioned their own. They've bought a number of uh, movie distribution rights as well. Um, and so they're, they're one player. Um, HBO that I mentioned just now is another big player as well. Obviously, they're traditional channels that they sell through uh, pay TV companies here in the US, but also they're um, HBO Now subscription service that's sort of standalone over the top uh, subscription service that they have. So they, they fill those. Uh, and then there's Hulu, which is owned by several of the big TV networks here in the US uh, and offers um, on-demand access to mostly things that have already been on television but has increasingly been investing in its own uh, original content stuff as well. And then there's Netflix, which is kind of the big gun in this space, and we'll talk about them a lot. Uh, today, but obviously they, they have been investing in original content for several years now. Uh, and then there's YouTube um, itself, which you know is still mostly user-generated content, but uh, a lot of um, money has gone from YouTube over the last year or two into creating some original content, almost all based on properties and performers and personalities from uh, the user-generated side. So as they've launched YouTube Red, which is their subscription service, they've started pulling original content into there, including from Felix Kjellberg, PewDiePie, who's been in the news this week for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, he has. And that part's been really sad, especially because it, it was 
it seemed it was foolish more than anything else, more yeah. than malicious. And I, I think that that makes it really interesting about how this live content is created and who people partner with in the process of creating it. Yeah. And this personality driven stuff seems to be a lot riskier than say scripted content, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so let's talk about why they're doing this. I mean, there, this is a lot of new people coming into original mm -hmm. content. It didn't used to be that way at all. It, it, you know, I mean, there was, I think the last time there was sort of a gold rush approach to original content was back when, when uh, cable channels started, you know, breeding like rabbits and there was a cable mm -hmm. channel for just about every interest under the sun. Right. Um, so, so what's what's happening now? Like, why are all these non-traditional players moving into this space? Yeah, and really, it's you know, uh, and the reason I'm including HBO here is because its model is is fundamentally similar to these other companies in that it started out licensing other people's content and then started making its own. And as I say, it was something of a pioneer in this space. Uh, and the reason was simple. You know, the more exclusive content you have, the more your property sticks out and and becomes attractive to people. Uh, independently and, and relative to other properties that are out there. So if you're just licensing all the same movies and TV shows as everybody else is, you know, it's pretty easy to steal subscribers away. But if you have not just content, but really interesting, good content that's exclusive, that's not available anywhere else, that's a lot stickier. And that's fundamentally why these companies are doing this. But there are other reasons too. And so um, one of those is uh, that, you know, net, to take Netflix as an example, um, you know, they have been increasingly threatened by the prospect of some of their big content partners pulling their content. And so early on in the history of Netflix, Stars was a big partner. Um, it's an online, uh, sorry, a, a cable pay TV channel here in the US that does movies that they'd licensed a lot of their content to Netflix. And it was a big part of the original uh, movie catalog on Netflix. And, and that relationship grew significantly over time and then eventually ended. Um, and so Netflix is vulnerable to that. And so the threat of losing some of the access to licensed content and Viacom has been threatening to, to hold some of its stuff back lately from various uh, services, you know, that's a, a constant threat. And, and when you uh, live entirely off licensed content from other providers, then you can't afford to have it suddenly go dark. And so you have to hedge against that and you hedge against it by taking control over your own content. Um, the third big reason, and again, Netflix is a great example here, is that the finances can be better. So you license content from a third party, you're paying not just for the, the cost of making the content, but you're paying a profit margin to whoever actually produced it. You probably have fairly limited rights for your platform only, so you don't have any right to sell that content on. You might only be able to sell it in one, show it in one country. Um, you can't, you know, make residual rights off it or anything like that. And so, you know, making your own content, you get to decide exactly what's made. You only pay the actual costs and then any margin is yours. Um, you get to have exclusive and, and global rights for it. So you get to license it all over the world. You get to license it back to TV companies, for example. So get some licensing going back the other way and monetize that. Um, and uh, and ultimately, you get just the content that you want. You, you get to uh, specify exactly what you want it to look like, what you want the format to be, when you want it to be available, and so on, uh, because you know what your audience likes. And so uh, there's a lot of control that comes from that as well. So the combination of the sort of exclusivity and differentiation, the hedging against the loss of content license from third parties, and then some of the financial and cost benefits are there as well. So those apply to pretty much all of these companies that we're talking about here. Um, you know, they're all coming from different places. Some of them are sort of online only. Some of them are traditionally ad supported, trying to move into subscriptions. Some of them are sort of TV based, but the model's essentially the same. So one of the interesting problems or challenges with this 
with this new approach to, to original content is that we lose the benefit of aggregation that we used to have as consumers. I mean, yeah. it used to be right. It, it used to be the case that you have one satellite bill, one cable bill, and you get access to all this kind of stuff. Now that over the top streaming is becoming much more popular, and that it's easier for people to watch this stuff on their televisions in their living rooms, um, that's going away. And so, if I want to watch Game of Thrones, I have to subscribe to HBO now. If I want to watch um, uh, uh, Stranger Things, I have to sign up for Netflix. And there's no longer the benefit of aggregation, um, and this seems like it's uh, like it's got to be part of the equation, right? Especially for players like Apple, who seem to be more interested in selling Apple TVs, right, than they are in getting people to buy their shows. Um, or have I got that wrong? Yeah, um, I, I think as a consumer I don't like the exclusive model because it means I do, if I want all the content that I want I have to buy it from lots of different places can't just go to one and I may still be able to buy a box whether that's you know Apple TV whether it's Amazon Fire TV whether it's a Roku you know whatever it might be um, I can buy a box that brings all those things to me but then I'm dipping in and out of apps and so on and, and so there are various attempts to solve that problem but you know there are lots of different places in this value chain and you know one of them is making this content and becoming a, a provider in your own right one of them is acting as this sort of distributor and, and sort of aggregator of all this stuff as, as Apple currently is but to your point you know and I didn't talk about you know why Apple was getting into original content but you know they're doing it to differentiate their Apple music service um, and so in addition to being an aggregator of third-party content, which has been a big focus for them, and their new TV app on the Apple TV and iOS is obviously intended to facilitate that kind of aggregation and create a sort of unified user interface, even though the, the services behind the scenes are pretty fragmented, they're also getting into original content themselves. And they're doing it around Apple Music, they're doing it around things that have some connection to other parts of the Apple business, whether that's music in the case of Carpool Karaoke, uh, whether it's apps, in the case of this Planet of the Apps, Shark Tank-style reality TV show, that has some tie back to the rest of the business, and it's, it's going into Apple Music for now. However, um, you know, if they want to compete in this space against these other players, they're going to need a raft of original and unique and differentiated content, and so this is a great place to start if they have ambitions in the subscription video space as well. So, um, you know, Apple's kind of mostly on one side of this equation right now as an aggregator and sort of endpoint, but, you know, they're clearly hedging at the very least and, and potentially preparing for laying the foundation for uh, a play that's much more direct in terms of the sort of original content space themselves. Yeah. Well, and, and the other thing is this stuff is not cheap. I mean, producing original content requires a lot of money in terms of talent, in terms of infrastructure and equipment. Um, you know, these are expensive productions, especially, you know, the scripted ones um, yeah. where you're, you know, setting up whole new worlds like Stranger Things was, you know, throwing us back into the 80s again. Um, and so, these are, you know, how much are all these, all, all these different companies spending on, on this original content? Yeah, and this is um, where you get into some really interesting numbers. And, and there, there are definitely some challenges here because most of these companies are not public and most of them aren't that transparent about how much they're spending on this stuff. Um, HBO obviously is part of Time Warner and is public. Um, Hulu's not. Um, Netflix is a big public company but doesn't break out its content costs explicitly except in sort of fairly round numbers at the end of the beginning of the year. Uh, Amazon buries all this stuff entirely and so you really have to do a lot of digging to get at it. So, And, and YouTube is 
utterly untransparent. So, um, you know, there's a real mix here, and that's that's the important caveat, I guess, up front. But uh, the reality is these companies are spending a lot of money on this stuff. And so kind of going through them, again, in alphabetical order, um, some of the big financial houses out there reckon that Amazon – uh, spent around four to four and a half billion dollars on content in 2016, um, rising probably to five to six billion this coming year. Um, the interesting there, and, and I just did some analysis this morning that I, I published on the Beyond Devices blog about Amazon's Prime subscriptions. My estimate is that Amazon only actually records about two and a half billion a year, or in 2016 they record about two and a half billion in revenue from. Uh, Prime Video. The rest of the Prime subscription uh, revenue goes towards shipping, um, and so you know they're spending well over uh, two billion more on content in total than they are bringing in in revenue for that video service. So it tells you something about their business model. Um, but you know they are spending a lot of money in content in general. Not all of that obviously is going on original content. A lot of that is still just licensing movies and shows that have had their first run somewhere else. Um, and only a fraction of that is original content, but they do have <coughs> an increasing number of original series, uh, and they're investing in distribution deals for films as well. And so uh, right now, uh, I, as far as I've been able to calculate, Amazon has 30 original series right now, uh, 11 dramas, 7 comedies, 9 for kids of various ages, 3 sort of unscripted things. So uh, the Grand Tour is by far the biggest of those. That was a really big budget production where they took over the Top Gear team from uh, the UK and, and created a new motoring show. Uh, but they have about 30 series altogether uh, that are true originals. Uh, and then they have another sort of 35 or so exclusive distribution deals. So this is stuff made elsewhere that they then license for exclusive distribution in, in the US or certain other markets. And they've got about another 20 in planning or production right now. Uh, and then on top of all of that, they have about 20 movies for which Amazon's secure distribution. And its model for movies is interesting because um, it has tended to acquire movie distribution rights, release them in the movie theater still, and then pull them onto Amazon. So it gets kind of two windows, which is you know quite different from Netflix, which tends to do either um, digital distribution only or allows other people to handle theatrical distribution rights. So it's an interesting model, but they're spending as I say, about $5 billion last year, four to five anyway, um, on content in total. And, and a good chunk of that will have been on original content. But um, you know, that's just one of these companies. HBO uh, makes about $6 billion in revenue a year. Um, their content costs uh, are sort of a fraction of that. They, their biggest spending is on uh, originals and then sports. So they have boxing and various other uh, events uh, in the sports world that they show. Um, but they have a lot of original content, so five drama shows right now, 11 comedies. Uh, they've also got some exclusive rights to other stuff, so they bought the rights to Sesame Street a while back, including the archives. And then they have a bunch of unscripted shows, so the John Oliver show, for example, they have a Bill Maher show, some other sports shows, and so on. Uh, and then they're always producing more and more stuff. So, you know, multi-billion dollar content investment every year, again, uh, some of that is movies and stuff that's licensed elsewhere, some fraction of it is original content. Hulu's probably the smallest of the companies we're going to talk about here um, in, the, in the sort of uh, traditional TV space. They're about $2 billion in revenue last year. Uh, they've also invested quite a bit in originals. They've got eight dramas, 12 comedies, eight various others, reality talk show, and so on. Um, they've done two continuations, and this is an interesting category. Excuse me, just need to take a drink here. I've got a bit of a cough. Um, continuations are an interesting category because um, 
this is where a show maybe ran on traditional television and then was cancelled, and then it's been resurrected by one of these services. So Hulu's done that with the Mindy Project and also with The Thick of It. Um, and you've seen that happen with kind of Gilmore Girls on Netflix <clears throat> and with various other shows as well. So it's an interesting model where it's sort of not quite original uh, and not quite just traditional licensing. It's sort of picking up a show that already exists. But Hulu, as I say, total revenue in 2016 was only about $2 billion. So their total content investment's a lot less. Obviously, they're owners of the TV companies, so they get a lot of their content through them. Uh, but their original content's relatively small compared to some of the others. Uh, and then we come to Netflix, which you know had $8.3 billion in streaming revenue in 2016. Uh, has, has spent $5 billion on content in total. And uh, it's a good chance that sort of one to one and a half billion of that was on originals. Um, and they had 600 hours of original content in 2016. They're planning to ramp that up to 1,000 hours uh, in 2017. And this is far more than anybody else has. And uh, they have a very complete listing on their website of all their originals, uh, both the ones they already have out there and the ones that are coming. Um, you know, the, the, just the ones that are upcoming, there's 99 different shows. And that's not episodes, that's separate properties. You know, uh, 24 films, so about a quarter of what they have coming up is films. Uh, movies, in other words, a uh, good chunk of its series with um, about 20 of them being kids shows, um, five documentaries, a whole bunch of other stuff. So that's just the stuff that's coming in the future. And then if you look at the stuff they already have on the service, there's something like 330 properties that they have already, uh, of which about 54 are movies, uh, uh, 59 are kids shows. So the whole range of different stuff. So if you compare this to the other numbers that I've been giving you, um, you can see the numbers are much bigger on the Netflix side than they are uh, for some of these other companies. So they're by far the biggest spender here. And again, that reflects their unique kind of priorities. The size of their base as well, they have almost 100 million subscribers. I'll get to that later this year. Um, and increasingly out of the US as well. And so a lot of this content is now being created and commissioned outside the US in languages other than English so that they have some nice local content to offer in the various markets where they operate around the world. So this is a very big set of spending by these companies. You know, Apple, I haven't really gone into detail yet. YouTube, I haven't gone into detail. Those are much smaller at this point than, than any of the others we've talked about. It's just kind of started to get up and running here. Uh, but Netflix is kind of the giant in this space. So it seems like these companies have had some impressive success with it. They've certainly broken through in, in terms of pop culture. Um, you know, going back to Stranger Things as an example with Netflix, I mean, that that's a show that you know, didn't even really have a full season's worth of episodes, at least not, you know, by traditional television standards. And yet it, it you know, it, it became a dominant pop culture thing and, and really rapidly too, because of how you can binge watch when Netflix launches, you know, shows, they usually launch all the episodes simultaneously. Um, so, I mean, so these are early indicators of success, but in the long term, is this all going to be worth it? I mean, is the future you know, the Netflixes and the HBOs and the Hulus, or, um, um, you know, is, is this all going to, because these are, like you said, we're talking billions of dollars of investment. I mean, are these investments that are going to pay back over time? Yeah, and, and the other tricky thing about this is not just the, the actual money, it's cash too. So Netflix has talked about this quite a bit in that when you move from licensing shows that have already been created to commissioning your own, you move from paying after the fact, so kind of as you start to show it is when you start to record it in your financials and start to pay for it. Um, with commission shows, you have to pay all the costs up front because you're actually paying somebody to produce the show. And so 
the cash load with original content, which Netflix has been ramping up a lot, uh, comes up front. And so they've gone from being a cash generating business to a business that eats a ton of cash on a quarterly basis. And so they're having to borrow money right now in order to finance that. And they, they say over time, you know, their profits will start to cover it and, and they'll work through that cycle and they'll, they'll start to be self-funding again. But, you know, there is a massive kind of cash outlay required for this original content. But yeah, in more general terms, and I, I did an analysis a few months back uh, with Netflix where um, basically they're running about a year to a year and a half behind their content spend in terms of their revenue. So um, what I mean by that is if you were, if they were to stop growing, it would only take about a year and a half for their content spend to catch up with their revenue. Uh, so they have to keep that growth going very rapidly in order to stay ahead of their content. And they, they already have forward content commitments of about $14, $15 billion. Uh, so it's only $6 billion that's going to be spent this coming year in 2017. But, you know, they've already committed out, you know, $14, $15 billion worth. And they only had total revenue of something like $9 billion last year. So, um, you know, there's this massive overhang and it's very dependent on their ability to continue to grow revenue so that they can cover those costs and then make a margin increasingly over time as well. So it is a big uh, expenditure and it's a highly risky one. Um, and, and the challenge from the outside is not knowing kind of how those investments are paid off. And, and so the uh, Amazon people and the Netflix people and all the rest of it are always asked about kind of how do you justify this investment, especially if a show seems to kind of get panned by the critics. You know, was that a bust? Was that a bad idea? And, and, you know, in the traditional TV world, you've got ratings, you've got ad dollars. It's all very transparent. You know when a show is or isn't doing well because everybody can see the Nielsen ratings. That's not the case with Netflix. And various people have tried to get at those numbers in other ways, but it's very hard to do. Um, and so those companies have instead fallen back on measuring success in a, a number of other ways. And so awards are a big part of that. So what awards do you win? There's Emmys, Golden Globes. Um, Oscars even so Amazon has a feature film up for best feature Manchester by the Sea and that was one they acquired at Sundance last year but um, you know that's that's their movie that had a theatrical release and will be going on to Amazon um, but it's up for uh, the best picture Oscar and then Netflix has uh, at least one documentary the 13th uh, up for best documentary feature uh, and this is one that Ava DuVernay directed after she did Selma so you know these companies now have uh, pictures and, and tv shows in contention for major awards they're now some of the biggest winners at the big award shows and so on and so they they use that as a measure of success because it obviously helps to drive interest in those shows and then in their services in general um, you know Netflix had an interesting number on their last earnings call where they talked about I think five of the top 10 TV shows globally that people search for on Google are Netflix shows. So you've got all these other measures of whether this has been successful, but ultimately it has to come down to the financial success, whether they continue to pay for this stuff. And for Netflix, that's the only thing they do is, is content that's licensed to their video subscribers. So they have to make money that way. Uh, for Amazon, as I say, they're probably losing truckloads of money on this stuff right now because it's a way to get people into the flywheel of buying stuff through Amazon and so on. And so their motivations are different. The, the business model around that can therefore be different as well. Um, so it's very different for different companies and so you know as amazon uh you know has an interesting business model here apple could as well so you know apple could subsidize some of this stuff as a way of saying you know, want to sell more iphones or apple tv boxes or whatever so you've got some interesting levers you can play with when your business is broader than just subscription video that you don't have if you're say a netflix uh, but yeah ultimately this is a very expensive business to be in it's going to get increasingly so. And, you know, I did some analysis recently for a variety column that's coming out in a couple of weeks. 
uh, about Sundance, which, you know, here in Utah, big film festival, and how the prices of uh, distribution rights sold at Sundance have skyrocketed over the last couple of years. And the biggest single reason is Amazon and Netflix are now the top buyers. You know, they've displaced big movie studios, uh, what tends to be the, the indie arms of big movie studios. Um, but they've displaced those as the top buyers and they've driven up prices quite considerably in the process. So, you know, this is having ripple effects all throughout the industry, whether it's in the film industry, TV industry, you know, demand for talent, prices for content and so on, bidding wars for films and, and TV shows and so on. Uh, and so, yeah, this is going to be a very expensive proposition. So just one last question. Is the ad-free subscription model that Netflix uses sustainable? I mean, they they, they could start advertising, and, and there's also merchandising on these shows. I mean, they can start, you know, supplementing the revenue for th their properties with merchandising like T-shirts and for kids' mm -hmm. shows, it would be toys. Um, but, uh, you know, is this primary revenue source being derived from subscribers sustainable in the long run for this approach is considering that's so expensive. Yeah, I think it has to be for Netflix. I think that's so tied up in their identity now. Uh, and again, they were asked about that um, in the earnings call this quarter and basically said, you know, there's no way we can move away from that. That's kind of what Netflix communicates to people is watching stuff without ads. Um, but they did recently put out a job ad for somebody to come in and help them with merchandising. So that absolutely is a, a revenue stream for them that they can pursue. I don't think it's going to be huge. They mostly see it as a way to market the shows rather than the other way around. But um, you know that that is an interesting new revenue opportunity for them for sure. Um, but yeah, this is this is a, a tough business. I, you know, I think Netflix will be fine. I think you know they are on the right trajectory. I think they're seeing really good growth internationally, and as they get more mature in those various markets, they'll become more profitable there as well. Um, and they'll, able, they'll be able to spread the, the content costs that they do incur across a, a much larger group of customers around the world. And what, what's interesting is, you know, unlike traditional TV where you kind of have, uh, you know, very unique geographic markets, Netflix has really found that a lot of their uh, content translates very well internationally. Uh, and so they've done quite well with that. And so that's going to be a strength that they have that, you know, Amazon's technically in 200 countries now, but the, the, the selection is minimal in most of those countries. And so, you know, Netflix's proposition is much stronger there. Um, for an HBO, it's very different. They're a traditional TV company that's now doing over the top as well. Um, so the model is different for each company. But, uh, you know, I, I think Netflix will be fine. Um, you know, the, the biggest threat to them is if their growth starts to slow down significantly. And there's not a lot of evidence that that's going to happen just yet. Well, that was, yeah, it's going to be fascinating to watch. I, I, uh, I appreciate you taking the time on this. I kind of feel like this is a question of the week topic that's been long overdue. So it was great to, to finally address it. Yeah, no, and I, I'm hoping that uh, I might be able to write this up in the next couple of days as well, just, just so that you guys can have something to, to go read about it as well. I've threw a lot of numbers at you guys, and, and uh, I'm thinking if I write some of it down, that'll be easier to digest as well. Well, let's move on to um, the uh, third segment here, uh, the, the SNAP S1 filing for IPO. Um, it was made public a couple of weeks ago now. I wrote a long blog post about it, diving into lots of the numbers uh, for Beyond Devices, which we'll link to from the website. Um, but uh, this is um, you know, long awaited, obviously, a company that we've been waiting to go public for a long time. Uh, Aaron, what kind of stuck out to you as you look through some of the coverage and so on of this uh, S1 filing? Yeah, uh, so there are a few things. I, I think the first thing I'll mention is uh, there is a chasm in terms of the demographics of Snap users versus social media users generally. Uh, I, I mean, I, I looking at the numbers, you know, I think I always sort of knew intuitively that 
that that young people preferred Snap, you know, in general, and the older people preferred Facebook in general. But but it is it is really dramatic the difference between those two demographics. It it may you know I I think as far as the prospects of of Snap it, it, from an investor's perspective, I guess it's exciting that there's a lot of room for growth. Um, although, you know, there are legitimate concerns that once old people move into you know to start using snapchat then uh all the young people go to the next new thing (laughs) so but i'm not sure that's really going to happen um in part because snap makes such a big deal out of user engagement which i guess is another thing from the s1 filing because that that's one thing that's a concept that they really really pushed um because if you look right now their 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 user growth is fine i think it's not it's not way out of line of expectations, but they're still pretty small. Um, and the other number that was small that you got from their S1 is is their ARPU, their average revenue per user. And whether that's measured by monthly users or daily users, it's also small. It's not small compared to, say, Twitter and Facebook when they first uh, did, you know, issued their IPOs. But um, this this engagement idea is a really interesting one. And if you look at the way Snap talks about the way they want to reinvent cameras and and all these other things, and the way they've done, uh, origin like the way they've done content with advertisers, um, and, and not just like advertisers pushing out messages through Snap, but with lenses and all sorts of other things. You can tell this engagement idea is really baked in deep, and I and I think it's something where they have an edge in the social media space. I, I think they have figured out creative new ways for engaging users um, that makes the app so engrossing for those that are using it. Yeah, um, it, it's it's such an interesting thing because it, there was this was there in the reporting before the actual S one came out that they were really emphasizing engagement and uh, and you can kind of see why because the user growth numbers have kind of tapered off a bit towards the end of last year and that they have various explanations for that and we'll have to see if those are true or not um, as as things move forward. You know, they claim that it was a bad Android release and they did have a bad Android release towards the end of last year that sort of hampered user growth and they also said that they had a lot of new features early last year that maybe pulled some of the natural growth forward a bit um, but obviously the big other thing that happened in the second half of last year was the launch of Instagram stories and that you know based on a lot of the other data that I've seen that really does seem to have been a big reason for their slowing growth last year so one of the big things they have to demonstrate is that user growth is actually going to continue to, to be there um, in a meaningful way long term and yes you emphasize engagement um, if you don't have the user growth to some extent and they do have you know a couple of numbers in the s1 about time spent and how many snaps people send a day and that kind of thing but there's no longitudinal data there they don't have any sort of data points over time so there's no real indication that that engagement is growing um, and importantly a lot of that engagement data is around the communication aspects which is not where you see ads in snapchat you see ads when you go into the content uh, into the stories and so on and, and there's not a lot of evidence that um, the engagement is, is increasing there necessarily, and that's obviously what's going to drive ad revenue. Um, and so that's that's another worry is kind of the engagement. The, the metrics are static. They're not, as I say, dynamic over time. You can't see a trend line there at all. And so when you don't have strong user growth and you don't have longitudinal data about engagement, that gets a bit worrying. Um, and, you know, they were apparently desperate to try to paint themselves as the next Facebook and not the next Twitter. And yet, right now, there's a lot of this that looks a lot more like Twitter, especially the fact that they're losing lots of money as well. Um, 
And so that, that was my big worry. And I think, you know, ironically, if they'd gone public towards the end of last year, I think that would have been great timing because they'd have massive user growth until that point. Um, if they'd gone public a few months from now, perhaps they would have got out of these sort of doldrums they seem to be in right now and, and proved that it was just a, a sort of a fluke, uh, that they, they saw slower growth at the end of last year. The timing right now couldn't be worse because they're right in the middle of this period of slowing growth. Uh, if they IPO in March, which is what's been talked about, then they won't have time to show another quarter's worth of, of better growth yet by that time. And so they're basically asking investors to take it on trust that they're going to grow and grow strongly even though there's not that much evidence of that right now in the actual S1. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, and what you mentioned about the doldrums made me remember another thing I wanted to talk about with this, which is that, uh, you know, I, there's a, I think there's a, <clears throat> there's a misremembering that's going on because everybody's comparing this Snap IPO to Facebook. And Facebook has been a really great performing stock. I mean, if you invested early in them, you did really well. Um, and I feel like I have, we have to qualify all this stuff, right, to say whether we're not financial advisors. That's the lawyer in me coming out right now. But anyway, um, but the but the point is, is that this is not remembering accurately. I, I think what's going to happen is in the next few months, you're going to see Snap kind of being in the doldrums a little bit, both in terms of its stock performance and and in its reporting on user growth and things for the reasons that you already talked about. But what people are forgetting is that Facebook, after its IPO, uh, languished for about a year and a half. I mean, and then when it started growing, it wasn't like a spike. It was a, it was sort of a steady ramp up as they figured out, you know, to how to how to improve their ad load and and uh, you know they started hitting more international growth. And so Facebook found its way, but it didn't do that right away. And I remember after the Facebook IPO, there were a whole bunch of people who had invested and and lost and and you know if they had to exit two or three months after the IPO, they lost money on their investment. Right. And in right. some cases, even a year out. And again, this all just relates to the idea that, um, you know, I Snap is going to be a company where, if we're going to treat them like Facebook, if we're going to compare them to Facebook, then we've got to be thinking two or three years out into the future or longer, not necessarily, you know, making our judgments just based on the year to come. Yeah, another fascinating story that was in the news this week, um, but it's something that came out in the S1 as well, is that Snapchat's been very focused on iPhone users. That's not unusual for certain types of apps to focus on iPhone users because they tend to be higher spending, they tend to be you know, uh, more attractive to advertisers and so on. Um, that works quite well if you're making like a photo filter app or if you're making like a, a video app or something like that where it's mostly about content consumption. It's a lot harder when it's a social app where you know, a key part of the value proposition is you can talk to all your friends on it. Um, and so they've really neglected their Android products. And uh, I think it was the information that had the story this week about uh, the Android side of things. But it's mentioned specifically in the S1 as well that they basically haven't emphasized Android and that most of their users are on iPhones. And of course, if they want to continue to grow, they're going to have to get uh, friendlier with the Android community because that's where most of the users are globally. And so that's another interesting challenge that they're going to have to work through. And it, it sounds like... Uh, the culture at Snapchat is very iPhone-centric too. Most of the people who work there have iPhones, and they've had to, you know, provide incentives like giving people free Android phones in order to get people to use them and test the app on those platforms and stuff just to get better at what they do there. But um, you know, lots of interesting little wrinkles in there. And, and the other interesting wrinkle was uh, their commitments to Google and and then an amended uh, filing to Amazon as well. So they have very big 
annual commitments to, to both those companies for cloud services over the next few years. Google's their primary supplier. It's, it's Google Cloud's biggest customer by far, I think. Uh, but then they've, they've signed up Amazon as a sort of redundant secondary supplier as well. And with both of those, they have very big commitments over the next few years. I think two billion in total over five years to, to Google. And then uh, I, I think it's a, a billion over time with, with Amazon as well. So, uh, you know, a lot of their costs are basically set. And so again, kind of like Netflix we were talking about earlier, you know, that's fine as long as their growth continues. But if it doesn't, then they end up in fairly big financial trouble because you know, that, those commitments to spend that money, which are basically non-negotiable at this point, uh, are contingent on being able to drive revenue growth to, to cover those costs. Yeah, uh, just two thoughts about growth. One, the international front is a legitimate concern, not just because, um, uh, not just because of the Android problem, but also because of the uh, um, the the messaging nature of Snap. I mean, I mean yeah. one of the main reasons that people come in, that one of the main reasons young people are using Snap is this messaging, right? I mean, you're messaging through these silly little videos, yeah. and. Uh, and internationally, there are already really strong, well-entrenched players when it comes to messaging, and and that's a platform decision for a consumer. Mm-hmm. And and uh, you know, Facebook is different, uh, Twitter is different. People are finding news there. They're doing other things besides just messaging. But for most users, messaging is the main reason they're in Snap. And if you're going to grow internationally, you're now competing with with uh, WeChat and all kinds of other messaging services that are already deeply embedded. Um, the second thing about growth um, is it relates to revenue is, you know, it does look like they have a lot of room to grow in terms of ARPU. And, you know, I think they're, I think the advertising, Snap as an advertise, Snapchat as, a pl- as an advertising platform is something that Snap is still figuring out. But I, but, I, but I think it's presumptuous to say that they're not going to figure that out. I think they will, just in the same way that Facebook took time to really figure out how to improve its, its you know, ad loads. And I think Snap's going to figure that out, too. So there is, there is revenue growth ahead, even if their user growth stalls. Um, and so that's encouraging. By the way, the other company we've talked about that they're being compared to is Twitter. And if you look at Twitter's stock, um, you know, it... Uh, it close to doubled uh, within six months, within a few months actually of its IPO, and since then has done really poorly. And so, if you right. invested in the IPO in Twitter, you've lost fifty percent of your investment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, these are weird comparisons to make. Not weird, but but they're hard comparisons to make they're because complex, aren't they? yeah. they're complex. Because at the time of the IPO for both Facebook and Twitter, the the short answer is markets had it wrong. I mean, Facebook was undervalued for a year and a half, right? And and then investors started figuring it out, and Twitter was overvalued, and mm-hmm. uh, and and it took a while for investors to figure that out. One of those two things is going to happen, <laughs> right? I mean, I suppose right. there's the likelihood that investors will will have this right, but I just think there's too much uncertainty into the future to say that with any confidence. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, there's probably plenty more we could talk about here, but I think in the interest of time, we'll wrap up there. Um, we'll wrap up as well the episode with our weekly pick. And Aaron, do you have something for us here? Yeah, I'm going to recommend a banjo player. <laughs> so this is putting <laughs> us way out there right now in terms of like our our standard practices for, you know, because we're normally recommending, I guess we recommend musical artists every once in a while, but yeah, I, this is our first banjo player officially. So, <laughs> so this is a guy named Gnome Pakelny. 
So his name is spelled N-O-A-M. That's his first name. His last name is spelled P-I-K-E-L-N-Y. Um, he is a younger guy who has been playing the banjo since he was a little kid um, and studied banjo with a, um, uh, with a bunch of really, really talented people. Um, he uh, is just coming out with a solo album in a couple of weeks. On March 3rd, he has a, he has a, a solo album out, coming out called Universal Favorite. Um, he's been playing for a long time, but mostly in groups. Uh, he's a member of Punch Brothers, which is a bluegrass group that a lot of people are familiar with. Um, Americana group that a lot of people are familiar with. Um, but anyway, he's striking out, and this is his first truly solo album. He's done other solo projects where he had backing bands and things, but this is just him. Now, if the thought of a solo banjo album sounds like torture, like the kind of thing you'd have to listen to it because you're being punished for some reason. Um, I hope you'll at least like go onto YouTube and, and, and check it out. If you're a fan of classical guitar, for example, I think this is something you'd actually really enjoy. If you're a fan of bluegrass, it's definitely something you'd enjoy. Um, the reason I'm bringing him up is because he's released a couple of his, uh, he's released a couple tracks from his albums. You can find them on YouTube from his new album. You can find the tracks on YouTube. The one I recommend is called Waveland. Um, and, uh, it's an incredibly fast banjo song, but so my wife and I got to see him live, um, just a few weeks ago. And, uh, when he, after he played that, he opened with Waveland. And then after he finished it, he said, you know, I wanted to write a banjo. I wanted to write a fast banjo song that didn't make you think of a car chase. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and if you listen to it, it really is, it's amazing. He, he is, he is hands down one of the most talented banjo players in the world. And, and uh, uh, in fact, he was also the first winner ever of the Steve Martin Award for Excellence in Banjo which comes with a pretty hefty cash prize um, and it was an award that Steve Martin used to give on the Dave Letterman show every year on, on the, the late show. But anyway, again, the guy's name is Noam Pakelny. By the way, if you have a chance to see him live, I highly recommend it. He has a fantastic sense of humor. And so he's really fun to watch live. And if you go to his website, he's got a few dozen tour dates coming up in the next three months. And, and, uh, and so again, Noam Pakelny, uh, if you've never listened to the banjo before, he's probably one of the best people to start with. Great. Well, thanks, Aaron. Um, and as a reminder, our weekly pick is just something that we recommend. It's uh, entirely organic. It's not a sponsorship or anything like that. But on that subject, uh, we've started to consider the idea of having sponsors on the show. And so that's something we're exploring over the next uh, couple of weeks here. We, you may start hearing something on the show by way of sponsorships, but we're um, reaching out to a variety of people we think might be interested in that. So if you are someone or know someone who might be interested in sponsoring the podcast that you think would be a good fit for our, our listeners, then please get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, and as I say, you may hear um, some stuff start to show up here in the next few weeks as we explore that a little bit. Thank you for being with us. As always, we'll have links to a lot of the things we talked about on the website at podcast.beyonddevices. Uh, give us a review. Leave us a rating uh, on your podcast app of choice on iTunes, Overcast, wherever you're listening to us. And uh, listen to other episodes if you haven't had a chance to do so yet. And we look forward to being with you again next week. Thank you.